what is wrong with this world today? Some say that it's a loss of respect for law and order. Others say it's systemic racism which requires radical changes to our society. Uh, Some say that it's a loss of economic freedom with uh, too much government interference, while others say that it's income inequality that government should address. Some say it's global climate change. Others say it's global government. Some say it's that people are not wearing masks and taking precautions against the pandemic. Others say it's people wearing masks. (laughs) Uh, What is wrong with this world today? Uh, We're going to look at the book of Judges and see that the problem with the world today is that we do not acknowledge God as king. Now, the book of Judges is a puzzling book. Um, On a number of scores, on almost every page, you come up against things that feel weird. It's weird for God to command the wiping out of the enemies of Israel. It's weird to think that you can know God's will by a piece of lambskin being either wet or dry. It's weird to have a civil war that is started because of human trafficking. It's weird to have someone make a rash vow that all of the penalty of that vow falls on the daughter of the one making the vow. It's weird that there are silly riddles that are in this book that are solved by trickery that leads to death. All of that and more is in this book. The point of view of judges is to see ourselves as the weird ones. We are the makers of the mess. We are not the heroes of the story. So if you read the book of Judges and you read it from the point of view of, oh, I am kind of joining with these various heroes of the faith to rescue. No, no, no. The point of the book is for us to see ourselves as the the weird ones, the makers of the mess. If Judges is messy, it's because we are a mess. The human condition is a mess. We need rescue. What's interesting is that quite often we think that the problem with the world is out there somewhere. It's other people's problems. And that's another hazard of looking at this book, of saying, oh, silly, messy, weird Israel. Or to look at it and see parallels in our own culture and say, do you see how weird and strange and rebellious our culture is? And that's not the point of the book either. The point of the book is for us to look deeply at ourselves. The Bible says that it, the scriptures are a mirror. To look into the mirror and say, I'm the mess. I'm the weird one. I need rescue by a king that is not me. You see, all of this This weirdness is made worse when we seek to build our own kingdoms rather than acknowledge that God is the one true king. 
In that sense, Judges reads exactly like our own world. And by the way, I have said several times over the past few weeks that our only hope is revival. But guess what? If revival is some strategy by which we trick God into blessing us rather than the full surrender of all that we are and have to God, come what may, then revival will be short-lived. And that too is a lesson found on the pages of this book of Judges. So, with that in mind, we're going to do a little bit of an overview. I know that we did kind of an overview of where we went in Acts last week as a summary of the book of Acts. This series, I decided to do the summary at the beginning. So if you've been here for two weeks, you might think that all I do is summaries of books of the Bible. I assure you that's not the case. We'll do the deep dive into Judges in weeks to come. But I wanted to do this kind of overview so, as to, so that we will see ourselves in these various conflicts. The biggest problem in any culture is not pagans acting like pagans. It is God's people acting like pagans. It's very easy for us to look at sinners who are unredeemed, have never put their faith and hope in Jesus, and to see, lo and behold, they sin and rebel against God. There's no surprise there, and frankly, that's not the issue. The issue there is that we take this glorious good news that Jesus has come to rescue us, that the real problem for what ails us is God's people acting like pagans. Let's look at several ways in which that happened in Judges and see if we don't also see ourselves here. The first is in Judges chapter 1, verses 27 to 35. Money is more important than principle. Money is a greater king than God. It talks about all these various tribes and how they did not drive out the Canaanite inhabitants. Manasseh didn't in verse 27. Um, the Canaanites, it says at the end of verse 27, persisted in dwelling in the land. When Israel grew strong, verse 28, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they didn't drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim didn't drive out the Canaanites either. Verse 30, uh, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants either. And then they made them subject to forced labor, these Canaanites. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. They lived among the Canaanites. They did not drive them out. Verse 37, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants that are in their tribal allotment, but those inhabitants became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. They didn't allow them to come down to the plain. It says they were persisting in dwelling in this area, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them. They became subject to forced labor. What's happening here? Why didn't... 
Why didn't Israel, after Joshua had done all of the heavy lifting, getting rid of all the major enemies of Israel out, and then it was left to these individual tribes in their own tribal territories to do the mop-up work of these smaller groups and get rid of them, why didn't they drive them out? Well, first it was hard work. You know, they'd just been through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and then they went through all these major campaigns of Joshua. They are just kind of saying, you know, it's just time to rest and relax and enjoy the, this land flowing with milk and honey. They got a little complacent. But also, it was not as profitable. Did you see four times there in verse 28, verse 30, verse 33, and verse 35? It says they drove them into forced labor, these Canaanites, made them slaves. It was more profitable for them to, be, to, to enslave them than it was to drive them out. And so, these Canaanites lived among the Israelites. Now, what did living among them do to Israel? Well, first problem is that Israel didn't know the agriculture, they had come from Egypt where everything was done by irrigation. Now they come into the land of, uh, of Canaan and inherit the land and it's fed by the spring and fall rains and there's a certain way in which you do things, certain way you plant things, certain way you harvest things. They didn't know anything about it. So they have their land and they're doing stuff and they're doing it all wrong and they've got a terrible crop. And they wonder, I wonder what's going on. Why am I not getting a good crop? And their Canaanite slave said to them, well, it's because your God was a big enough God to get you here, but he's not the God of this territory. They believed that all gods were local. And if you just served the Baal here, then you would get the produce of the land. And then, no doubt, the Canaanite slave also showed the process of when you planted and how you uh, cultivated and how you fertilized and how you harvested the crops. And lo and behold, it produced more money, right? And so what, be, what happened was not just an economic prosperity, but there's also a failure to acknowledge in the Canaanite mind the local deities and so what did the Israelites do? They said, here's a great plan. Here's a great plan for our success. We will worship the Lord and we will worship the Baals. We'll do both. We'll cover our bases and everything will be fine. You see, that's where money becomes more important than principle. The problem of not knowing the agriculture, the problem that the Canaanites said of not knowing the local deities, and the problem of pragmatic syncretism. Those are two big fancy words to just say, we'll just cover our bases by worshiping everything. Now, in what ways are we like the Israelites in this? Well, whenever we as believers in Jesus think that our net worth is our worth, We are the weird ones. We are the ones living without acknowledging the true God is king. 
whenever we think that small compromises are not all that hazardous, we are living like these Israelites. Oh, well, I'll just compromise here and here. It's not that big a deal. It's not that big. All I'm doing is offering this little sacrifice to this Baal. I'll, I'll do all the worship of the true God, you know. Making small compromises in our lives, we think that they aren't hazardous. When we think that my way is more fun than God's and it doesn't really hurt me, I won't go into detail on this, but part of the practice of Canaanite worship involved really significant immoral behavior to reflect the fertility of the earth, right? And so in all of that immoral behavior, there was a lot of pleasure involved in that. And people were thinking, that's more fun than God's way. And it's not really hurting anybody after all. Thinking that my sacrifice as a believer in the true God justifies my small compromises. There are people who reason that way, right? Look at all the sacrifices I'm making as a believer. Surely it's okay that I have these small compromises because my sacrifices outweigh those compromises I'm making. You see, we are like the Israelites. I love the Getty song, My Worth is Not in What I Own. Not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by, but life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. That was not the Israelite pattern in Judges. And to the extent that we share their problem, it's not our passion either. A second problem that we see in Judges <clears throat> is men failing to lead spiritually. Uh, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10 Barak feels that he and God are not enough in order to defeat Jabin, king of Canaan, whose commander of his army was a man named Sisera. If you look down at chapter 4, verse 8, Barak says to Deborah the prophetess, if you go with me, I'll go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. In other words, he and God aren't enough. I got to have the prophetess with me in order to feel like I'm going to have some success in the battle here. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. <clears throat> and Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah 
went up with him. Here is an extremely countercultural thought in a day when we are rightly in many ways pointing out how women are just as important as men are in acknowledging Jesus as king. There's, uh, when I started seminary 35 plus years ago, all of the journal articles were about the importance of seeing everything in the Bible through the lens of feminism. And largely, uh, to this day, that has been, that worldview has been embraced by everyone, even within the evangelical Christian community. Here's the countercultural thought that I want to offer you, regardless of where you fall on the issue of women in Christian ministry, regardless of where you fall on that, the retreat from the field of spiritual battle by men over the past 150 years in the Western Christian church has been devastating for the church of Jesus Christ. The retreat of men from the field of spiritual battle over the last 150 years. Let me give you a statistic. Two-thirds of active missionaries are married couples. Two-thirds are married couples. One-third are single women. The rest are single men. Did you catch that? You caught the math. Two-thirds married couples one-third single women, and the rest are men. Now, it's not exactly that way. Actually, it's that 80 to 85% of single missionaries are women. But it is a rare thing for a man to feel the call to serve Jesus in a cross-cultural way across the world. Elizabeth Elliot tells of an interview that she had with Gladys Aylward, a single missionary to China who died in 1970. Um, Miss Aylward talked to the, uh, in their interview, Aylward described how she had talked to the Lord about her singleness. Now, you should read uh, biographies of Gladys Aylward because she's a no-nonsense woman with a very direct and straightforward way. And she asked God to call a man from England, send him straight out to China, straight to where she was, and have him propose to her. Very specific prayer. Elliot writes that she asked her why it was that she remained single given that prayer. Elliot records with a look of even deeper intensity Aylward shook her little bony finger in my face and said, Elizabeth, I believe God answers prayer. And he called him. And then her voice turned to a whisper. He called him. And he never came. In the days of the judges, men were failing to lead spiritually. Another area is that excuses are more common than obedience. Excuses are more common than obedience. Uh, Go over to Judges chapter 6. You'll see the story of Gideon here. And 
Gideon is being called. Um, we'll go into detail when we get to this portion of the story. But the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and, and the angel says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted us to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. The why question that paralyzes serving our king. I cannot say enough how even in our own day, believers in Jesus Christ have been paralyzed from serving their master and king Jesus because they have some why question that they don't get an answer for. And that's Gideon. Why? Why is this happening? The doubting of God's goodness. Where is God? In fact, the use of scripture to prove doubt rather than the kingship of God was commonplace in Judges. He's saying, we've heard the stories of God's faithfulness. We have heard of God bringing up our fathers out of Egypt. He's, He's calling on scripture to raise the doubts. In our own day, the same kinds of things are happening. Scriptures are being called forth to raise doubts about the goodness and the greatness of our God. Skip to verse 15. Gideon says to this angel of the Lord, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The personal angst question that paralyzes by analysis. The first question is the why question that paralyzes serving our king. The second one is the personal angst question that defeats by analysis. How can I save Israel? And then he says, look at my family background. Look at my own status even inside that poor family. I can't serve the Lord. And the answer today to those kinds of angst questions is not, look, look to the good and great God who's king. No, that's not the answer. The answer that is trotted out today is talk yourself into thinking how great you are. Only by doing that can you be healed of your weaknesses. Excuses more common than obedience. Look at verse 16 there briefly. And the Lord said to Gideon, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. God's response is not, oh Gideon, consider what a great person you really are. (laughs) That's not his answer. Rather, his answer is, I, the eternal God of the universe, who alone dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to whom all glory and honor belong forever and ever, I will be with you. (laughs) And that's enough. That's more than enough, my friends. Next is suspicion and bitterness characterize relationships. Gideon wins a great victory over the Midianites 
And remember, he did it with 300 guys. And after the victory, what happens? All the people come out of the woodwork saying, well, why didn't you call us to join in the battle too? We should have been there. You, didn't do, you may have done something good, but you didn't do it in the right way. And they're suspicious, and they are filled with bitterness at Gideon. Chapter 8, verse 1, the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this you have done to us? not to call us when you went to fight against Midian, and they accused him fiercely, jealous of success, a failure to acknowledge that God is king and that God has won the victory, and wanting to build their own petty little kingdoms and to make sure they got the credit for everything. We got to make sure that everybody gets the credit for whatever little thing they do. And then in chapter 9, we get the opposite of Gideon's problem of lack of self-esteem. Gideon now has a son who's grown. Do you know the name Gideon gave him? The name that he gave him is Abimelech. You know what that name means? It means, my father is king. <laughs> to name your son, my father is king. That takes a little bit of an ego, doesn't it? And he names his son, my father is king. And guess what my father is king does? He starts to act like he's king. And it creates all kinds of problems of suspicion and bitterness so that we read in Judges chapter 9 verse 22, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Suspicion and bitterness characterizing relationships. Listen, where there is in the service of the Lord suspicion and bitterness, there is an invitation for a spirit of evil to thwart any efforts. Here's the challenge here, an interesting challenge of this book of Judges that raises all kinds of theological questions. God sends the evil spirit? Yes. Have you ever thought about why it is that we try and do all the right things and there seems to be bis no, no result, whether it's in your family or in the church or in a community. You see, everybody's trying really hard and they seem to all be doing right things. But where there has been suspicion and bitterness, guess what? That's an invitation to an evil spirit that will thwart all of the good work and you don't see the results. If you had six months to live, how much time would you spend making relationships worse? And then we have a determination to go one's own way, knowing that it's not God's way. This is in chapter 18, the tribe of Dan. They couldn't conquer the people around the territory God had given them. So they said, we've got an idea. We'll just go to an area we know isn't what God has given us, but we're going to go there anyway. We're going to do our way, and we know it's better than God's way. And so they moved from this area that was indeed at the time filled with all kinds of local conflict. But do you know where they moved? They moved to an international highway where all they did was get beaten over and over by the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Arameans, the uh, uh, Persians, over and over and over again because they moved onto this international highway. 
It would be like saying, okay, I live on Linden Street in Normal. I don't like the traffic. I'll move on to Interstate 55. That was the Danite reasoning because at the moment, the interstate was closed and they thought there wasn't anybody there. They had a tribal allotment, but they didn't take it. They see the land up north as easier to take and it looks great. They are doubting what God has plainly said in his word and they are justifying their disobedience and they call it obedience. And that's not just Dan's problem, is it? It's our problem. We will disobey and we will justify it in such a way that makes it spin out to be obedience. And our answer to that is, I know that God would want me to be happy. That's how a Danite would say it. Sexual desire overcomes spiritual desire. We'll look at the story of, of Samson in several weeks. And in, in, in the story of Samson, what you have is these phrases. Judges 14.1, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Get her for me as my wife, he says to his parents. Chapter 16, verse 1, Samson went to Gaza, there he saw, there he saw a prostitute, and he went to her. You know, this, this idea of what Samson saw is what he wanted. What was it the Philistines did when they captured Samson in the end? They took out his eyes, couldn't see anymore. And then the last one, um, it's just bizarre behavior in chapters 19 through 21 where you have this human trafficking of this poor woman. You have the crime of such abuse that leads to her death, that leads to a war of, of a civil war where the tribe of Benjamin is almost wiped out. And then in order to repopulate the tribe, <clears throat> they go to some festival where there's some dancing girls and they kidnap the girls and make them their wives. Are you kidding me? This is insanity, right? And yet, there is nothing that does not become justifiable in our own minds. Bizarre behavior that leads to destruction. So, that's all about this principle, the biggest problem in any culture is not pagans acting like pagans. The problem wasn't Canaanites acting like Canaanites. The problem was God's people acting like pagans. That's the problem. Second thing that we're going to look at here, disobedience brings defeat. Revival and salvation end up then becoming ends in themselves rather than seeking to be worshipers of the true king. You see, there was a seeking after revival on the part of Israel, but why they sought revival was so that they would no longer feel the pain of their circumstances. That was why they weren't interested in seeking God, they were interested in getting rid of the pain of their circumstances. God becomes a cosmic genie at that point that you're just hoping you get your three wishes. If you look at it, you'll see this cycle in Judges chapter two um, 
verses 10 through 19. It says that all that generation were gathered to their fathers. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. You see how not driving them out led them into that uh, syncretism, that joining in that worship bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Wherever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges. These were deliverers, people who could deliver Israel, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet, they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods. That means they chased incessantly after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Listen to why. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Even now in our lives, as we may be running headlong away from God in many ways of our priorities along these six or seven lines that I've shared today, do you know the Lord's moved to pity by your plight? He cares for you. He wants to rescue you. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. You see, the cycle just gets repeated. There's a problem. God raises up a judge. The judge delivers them. They experience some prosperity. They forget the Lord. They fall back into their evil ways. And then the Lord brings an enemy to them who oppresses them. And then they cry out to God. And their interest in revival is not in pursuing God as king. The issue in revival was the pursuit of their own personal peace, their affluent lifestyle, and please, God, just keep my enemies away from me. And so we can summarize the entire book of the Judges by the last verse of the book, one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. Rather than the eternal God as their king, rather than recognizing that the land that they had been given was a gift of grace from the hand of the Lord and seeking to serve him all their days of acknowledging him as king, they decided we will be our own kings. And every person started living like they were their own king. In those days, last verse of Judges, in those days, there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Whatever you see is right for you is right for you, and you just do it. And that principle isn't just out there among pagans. It is in the church of Jesus Christ. And as we go on this journey through Judges, it is my earnest prayer that we will see the Lord's pity. We will experience His grace. We'll see that even though Israel messes up over and over and over again, the Lord still draws people back to Himself and calls Him calls them to himself in grace and that there is a king now who stands between us and almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully human and he knows our plight, he remembers our frame, he knows that we're dust and he's God of very God and he died to pay for our sins and he stands as the one between us to lead us to eternal life and acknowledge him as our great and majestic king. My friends, this is a book of hope. Not a book of hope for the people that we read about here. It's a book of hope for you and me. We do not have to live like this. <laughs> we don't have to. And we can see revival with a capital R. Not just a revival with a little r where we just get back to a spot where we can finally say, oh good, I'm glad that's over with but a revival with a capital R where we say all we want and all we have is God our King made known through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May it be so among us in the weeks to come that our hearts would be captivated by the majesty of our King. Please pray with me. O oh, Father, we acknowledge that we are more like Israel than we'd ever uh, imagined. We have gone our own ways. We tend to look at the pagan world and think that they're the problem when in fact we need to look a little closer and see that the problem is in the mirror. Forgive us for such pride. Humble us, Lord, we pray that we may have the priorities of our mind and our hearts shifted away from these shallow things that characterize the people in the time of the judges and that we would be a people who are white-hot worshipers of the living God made known through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can't in our own efforts do that and so you sent your son Jesus to be our brother, our captain, and our king and we bow our knee to him. Please guide us along the way through this series that you would change us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, who is the King of Kings, we pray, amen.